This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In the first perspective of today's program, I want to think with you about the Space Shuttle Program. Is this a metaphor for America? On the 8th of July, 2011, the United States Space Shuttle Program came to an end. The shuttle Atlantis was the last operational shuttle to be launched into space. Its mission was to resupply the International Space Station. The Space Shuttle Program has lasted for 30 years, has involved 135 launches and two, of course, terribly tragic disasters. The 1986 Challenger disintegration in midair shortly after liftoff, and then the 2003 Columbia disaster, which broke apart over Texas during reentry. Atlantis will now join Endeavor, Discovery, and the prototype Enterprise in various museums across the United States. As a result of the shuttle program's end, billions of dollars in the United States budget will be saved, albeit with the loss of significant numbers of jobs along Florida's space coast, as it's called, along with others in Houston and other parts of the country. Now, the International Space Station will rely on Russian, European, and Japanese rockets for its supplies. And, as The Economist laments, the nation that won the space race by putting Neil Armstrong's footprint on the moon with Apollo 11 will be without the ability to send astronauts into space. And those that do go into space will need to rent seats on Russian rockets. What does all this mean? Is it a symbol of America's decline, or is it not that significant? Several thoughts. First, a bit of history. The space shuttle program was actually a compromise. The original program called for the building of a space shuttle fleet and an orbiting space station simultaneously. However, President Nixon was unwilling to fund both, so the shuttle program began without any space station. The subsequent development of the International Space Station was largely due to the Russians, the original shuttle design was such that its cargo bay could hold spy satellites. Therefore, it was a multi-purpose ship that could carry all of the American government and commercial cargoes that could con be conceived into space, for the most part. Initially, the shuttles were designed to save money because of their reusability. But a fully reusable spacecraft proved too hard to build which is why the shuttles carry a huge external fuel tank that is jettisoned into the ocean after each flight. The shuttle's engines and the tiles that protect it from the heat of reentry proved expensive to maintain, and dividing the work among various contractors added to the cost. Estimates for the cost of each shot into space vary, but the costs have been between $450 million per space shot to as much as $1.5 billion. As The Economist demonstrates, Russia's expendable proton rockets, which are almost unchanged since the 1960s and which have a similar cargo capacity to the shuttle, are thought to cost about a quarter of NASA's figures for the shuttle. 
One of the crowning successes of the shuttle program was the 1993 in-orbit repair of the Hubble Space Telescope. With its 135 launches, the shuttle program eventually became routine, and public interest in the program actually began to wane. So secondly, with that little bit of history now as the background, what about the future? Well, former President Bush proposed what he called the Constellation Project, which was designed to return America to the moon for exploration and eventually make trips to Mars. But President Obama, Obama upon entering office, canceled that project. Instead, President Obama has outlined his plans for a space program, which has as its signature element the task of ferrying people and equipment into low-Earth orbit missions using the private sector. For example, later this year, two spacecraft, one designed by Orbital Sciences, a Virginia-based firm, and another by SpaceX, a California company run by Elon Musk, an Internet entrepreneur, will make cargo runs to the International Space Station. So without the burden of financing regular missions or the space shuttle, presumably NASA now will spend billions of dollars developing new engines, propellants, life support systems, and other types of investments. NASA's plans include the Space Launch System, built partly from recycled shuttle parts and built to lift astronauts and cargo into higher Earth orbits and even further missions to Mars, asteroids, and other things in space. Nonetheless, President Obama's comments have been very vague and void of much detail. And with the current budget and debt woes of the United States, the brutal facts are that America is definitely in decline when it comes to space technology or leadership in such technology. The space race, as The Economist has observed, was an outgrowth of the development of ballistic missile technology, and it was fueled by the Cold War and the concerns that America had about Soviet science. And it happened at a time when America's leaders were willing to spend huge amounts of money on propaganda and other things. Furthermore, future manned missions to, say, Mars, would be fraught with incredible dangers. It could take as much as six months, not the three days it takes to get to the moon. Furthermore, astronauts would be bombarded with cosmic radiation and risk being baked by unpredictable solar flares. These things we're not even sure we completely understand when it comes to launching human beings toward Mars. Communication between mission control and Mars would take much longer than the moon, making dealing with emergencies problematic. But non-human space missions will presumably continue. For example, robotics can alleviate some of the above-mentioned dangers, as recent robotic missions to Mars and Titan, one of Saturn's moons, have shown. And the use of satellites will not diminish, as the enormous number of satellites currently orbiting Earth demonstrates. Satellites for farming, military surveillance, telecoms, weather monitoring, TV broadcasts, and so on. But it does seem that the heroic phase of space exploration is over. Unless China and or India take over the leadership. In 2003, China became the third nation to put a human being into space atop a rocket it had developed by itself. Since then, China has launched five more taikonauts, which is what the Chinese call their astronauts, 
into orbit. China is also launching more satellites to track business for its Long March rockets. That's what they call them. And later this year, plans to build a very small space station on its own. It also plans a mission to the moon in 2017, with 2025 being a planned mission from China to the moon as well. Such opportunities and plans for America are distant, if not impossible. For America's future in space is uncertain, weighed down by foreign adventures against terrorism and burdened by a crushing debt. It's difficult to see America ever playing the leading role in space exploration. So, in a sense, the end of the space shuttle program is a metaphor for where America is, nostalgic about its past heroic achievements, but presently in decline. It simply cannot afford manned space travel any longer, and it is ceding such leadership to Russia and perhaps even to China. It is a most interesting and, quite frankly, rather sad development. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about polygamy, the next sexual revolution. Nearly two weeks ago, my wife and I were watching ABC Evening News, and an ABC investigative reporter was summarizing a piece on Michelle Bachman's husband, who runs a Christian counseling center in Minnesota. One of the goals of his center was to establish and help homosexuals who desire to change their lifestyle. The report was cynical and filled with innuendo and criticism from other professional counselors. The Christian counseling perspective was not fairly presented. Instead, the clear impression was that Bachman's husband was narrow-minded and his center was doing more harm than good. The rights and liberties of homosexuality were defended, and the clear impression was that the gay lifestyle choice is ethically identical to the heterosexual choice. There is no difference. Immediately following that report, Diane Sawyer reported on a Utah polygamist named Cody Brown who has four wives, Robin, Christine, Mary, and Janelle. From this polygamous marriage has come 16 children. Incidentally, this family is also the focus of a reality television show called Sister Wives. As Brown was interviewed, along with his four wives, he summarized his position legally as, I have a right to do this. We're not harming anyone. The state has no authority over my personal choices. We only wish to live our private lives according to our beliefs. As Peggy and I watched this report, I said to my wife, Brown is using the identical argument that gays and lesbians have been using over the last few decades, framing sexual life-child choices around precious terms so dear to America, rights, liberties, and no harm done to others. Well, let's think about this remarkable development. First of all, some background to the Cody Brown polygamous relationship. The state of Utah is investigating Cody Brown for the violation of its state law prohibiting polygamy. In contrast, the Browns are expected to file a lawsuit that challenges the Utah law that makes polygamy illegal. The lawsuit builds on a 2003 United States Supreme Court decision called Lawrence v. Texas, 
which struck down state sodomy laws as unconstitutional intrusions on the intimate conduct of consenting adults. That's a quote from that decision. It will ask the federal courts to tell states that they cannot punish polygamists for their own intimate conduct so long as they are not breaking other laws like those regarding child abuse or seeking multiple marriage licenses. Brown, in a rather typical Mormon polygamist relationship, has only one civil marriage. The rest are called sister wives, not formally wedded. The Browns are members of the Apostolic United Brethren Church, a fundamentalist offshoot of the Mormon Church, which gave up polygamy in 1890 so that Utah could become a state. The Browns contend that making polygamous unions illegal violates the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, as well as the free exercise, establishment, free speech, and freedom of association clauses of the First Amendment. When the Lawrence case was handed down in 2003, Justice Antonin Scalia noted rather prophetically that eventually the legitimizing of same-sex marriage would lead to the legitimizing of polygamous unions as well. Now, what does all of this mean? Well, the logic of the Brown case, which I just summarized, based on the 2003 Lawrence versus Texas decision, makes legal sense. On what basis will society declare that polygamous arrangements are any different than, for example, same-sex unions? If there is no personal harm, if there is consent, how can the courts legally deny polygamy? Framing the matter of polygamy, as is now being done, around rights, personal liberty, autonomy, and consent is brilliant. For it makes the strong case that individual freedom is the basis for polygamous choice and that the state has no basis for denying that individual freedom. If society no longer has an ethical basis for human sexuality, then how can society deny bigamy or polygamy? As our culture now looks at human sexuality, it still has reservations about incest, about rape, about pedophilia, but there really are few other reservations culturally. So, when it comes to human sexuality, what was once unthinkable becomes debatable and gradually becomes acceptable. We see this dialectic at work in same-sex arrangements, for example, and now polygamous marriage. We will see it at work in the days and weeks and months and perhaps years to come in other sexual relationships. We are witnessing what occurs to a civilization that no longer has any moral or ethical foundation. Lawrence versus Texas in 2003 legitimized personal autonomy in terms of sexual choice. It is logically now being used to challenge anti-polygamy laws. And in my view as a Christian, God is merely giving us over to our depravity and our debased minds as a civilization. 
This is a very sad day for the United States of America. We have fallen ethically. We have fallen morally. We are now framing almost all of our lifestyle choices, and it's now extended to polygamy. We are framing almost all of our lifestyle choices around personal autonomy and individual freedom. There is no ethical foundation. If it's consensual, if it is done where there's no harm done to others, then I have the right to do it. And that is what is occurring in this Cody Brown polygamist case coming out of Utah. It's exactly the same logic that was used to defend abortion, to defend euthanasia, the right to die, death with dignity movement. It has defined the entire homosexual and now same-sex marriage movement. And now it's being extended to polygamy. Dear people, if that is the logic we follow, there is no end to this expansion of personal autonomy and freedom. That is what we are witnessing in the United States of America. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the Boeing Corporation and the right to work. One of America's premier corporations, the Boeing Aircraft Corporation, has just built a second production plant in South Carolina. Its other plant is in Washington State for its 787 Dreamliner airplane, creating over 1,000 jobs in South Carolina, and it will create many, many more. But the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, created in 1935 by the Wagner Act, has taken exception to Boeing's decision to build this plant in South Carolina. The reason is that the NLRB is taking this action is that South Carolina is a right-to-work state. Along with 21 other states, South Carolina, as a right-to-work state, protects a worker's right not only to join the union, but also to make the choice not to join or financially support a union. Incidentally, Washington state is not a right-to-work state. If the NLRB action is successful, Boeing will be forced to move its plant back to Washington or close it. As Mark Mix, president of the National Right-to-Work Defense Foundation, has correctly argued, this would represent an unprecedented act of intervention by the federal government that appears on its face un-American. They are the words of Mark Mix. The Wagner Act of 1935, which created the NLRB, is often called Labor's Bill of Rights. To some extent, in the context of the Depression and FDR's New Deal, such hyperbole is understandable. Nonetheless, the NLRB was actually harmful for the American laborer, for it did not protect the individual worker's right to not join a union. In many parts of the United States, NLRB actions have resulted in mandatory union membership as a condition of employment. In that sense, such regulations impinge upon the individual laborer's right to choose. Mark Mix adds another dimension. Even more dramatic is the contrast if we look at personal income growth. From 2000 to 2010, real personal incomes grew by an average of 24% in the 22 right-to-work states, more than double the rate for the other 28 as a group that are not right-to-work states. 
But the strongest indicator is the migration of young adults. In 2009, there were 20% more 25- to 34-year-olds in right-to-work states than in 1999. In the compulsory union state, the increase was only 3.3%, barely one-sixth as much. The rationality of the free market is showing itself. Finally, it is important to remember that the NLRB affects only private sector workers. However, since the 1960s, 21 states have enacted laws authorizing the collection of forced union dues from at least some state and local public employees. Mix shows that more than a dozen additional states have granted union officials the monopoly power to speak for all government workers, whether they consent to this or not. Thus, today, 2011, government workers are more than five times as likely to be unionized as private sector workers. This represents a great danger to both taxpayers and consumers of government services. The best example of this growing concern within the United States is that in 2010, an average of 59% of public employees in these ni the nine worst default risk states were unionized, 19.2 percentage points higher and the national average of 40%. All of these states that are at default risk state, and here they are, California, Illinois, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, and Wisconsin, except Nevada, authorize compulsory union dues and fees in the public sector. Mark Mix, and in my examination of the evidence, I would agree, have concluded there is a connection the absurdity of the Boeing case in North South Carolina is telling. It could result, as I mentioned, in Boeing being required to move its plant back to Washington State. This illustrates the point that American workers in all 50 states must have full freedom as workers, including the right and the freedom not to associate in the area of union membership. Fairness, equity, and the true meaning of freedom are all at stake in this issue. In my judgment, the state, whether it's an individual state in this union or the United States government at the federal level, as is done in the private sector through the NLRB, cannot coerce and force and mandate workers to join a union as a condition of employment. And what they are trying to do at the NLRB level with the Boeing Corporation in South Carolina is not only incredible, it defies all credulity. It doesn't make sense. In this day and age, when we need major corporations to be creating more and more jobs, to do this in South Carolina is counterintuitive, counterproductive, and it flies in the face, in my judgment, of everything the United States of America stands for. I would like to see President Obama end what the NLRB is doing in this Boeing Corporation case. May God give us the courage, the temerity, and the wisdom we need to change this kind of activity in the United States of America. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.